Hey, would you, church, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, verse 17 through 24 is going to be our primary text. Uh, my name is Jason, one of the elders, uh, usually helps in teaching, so thank you for singing with us uh, today. Romans 11, verse 17 through 24, uh, if you're still learning the Bible, and we all are, the, the New Testament is on the right side of those old school Bibles with pages, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you get to Acts, go one more to the right. If you get to First and Second Corinthians, back to the left. Romans 11, 17 through 24 is where we'll make a home this morning. And as we've just sung that this love of Christ pours contempt on all of our pride, it's one of the things that I think we all have to take stock of, is our own arrogance, our own ego, our own pride. And this text today proves to be really fitting for us to sing that that song. Because humility is a really elusive virtue, isn't it? It's one of those things that as soon as you say, I am humble, there is clear evidence to suggest that maybe you're not, right? So simply claim that you have humility and that you are a humble man or a humble woman is to run the risk of possibly boasting in your humility and boasting in that you are more humble than your neighbor and therefore running the risk that you actually are proving that you're not humble at all. So it's a very tricky, very elusive virtue. And yet for the Christian, we we should take stock and be mindful that this is one of the only virtues that Jesus said that he had directly and that he was going to give it to his people. He said, take my yoke upon you because I'm lowly and humble of spirit. So he says, I'm actually going to make you humble. So the most elusive virtue Jesus actually promises Uh, his people. It's elusive by nature. But another reason that humility is elusive is because of the society in which we find ourselves, which by and large, surprisingly, when we really consider it, our society no longer esteems humility in the way that it used to. Our American Western culture really esteems something more along the lines of pride, and even though it goes by different names. We would never say, we love pride, let's go be proud and arrogant, but we would say, I want to be happy. And that happiness then becomes the groundwork, if you will, of all of our entire worldview. Here's what I mean by that. Happiness has become the aim of our worldview. It's become the way we make sense of the world, the way we justify nearly any and every action. If we say that makes you happy or that makes me happy, there's almost no rebuttal to that. That seems to be the logical center of our modern-day worldview. Now, this might seem odd to conflate these two, to put happiness and pride together. But when you really think about it, what happiness is, is unapologetic, self-determined, self-defined will or goodness or truth. I'm going to say what makes me happy. You can't tell me what makes me happy. So in, in many respects, the way we think about happiness reveals our value of pride our value of being at the center of our own worldview. Are they doing okay? Bless their hearts. God, we pray for those kids workers that they're discipling. I know it's hard work. God bless you. (laughs) Now, this, this may be like all well and good and a general idea for us to consider, but have you ever really thought about Pharrell Williams' song in 2013, Happy? By the way, that's almost 10 years ago. Think about that. Pharrell Williams sang happy and wrote about 10 years ago. Here's what he says. Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Clap along if you feel like happiness is what? The truth. 
Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. This was the song in Minions and Despicable Me that my kids memorized. They know the words of this song, and it really animates an entire cultural worldview. Happiness is your truth. Happiness is what you want to do. Happiness is whatever you feel like it is to you. This may be really funny and really interesting, but the reason it's so poppy and catchy is we go, yeah, I believe that. That's, that's really true. Yeah, I, I like that definition. See, happiness is the truth to us. It's what you want it to mean. It's what I want it to mean. So happiness is unapologetically self-defined in our culture. Now, while this may seem like really innocent and maybe even a noble quality, when we look more closely, our pursuit of happiness almost never takes us to humility. It almost never takes us to humility. We don't think about that the road that's going to make me happy is to lay down my rights. It's to humble myself before someone else and to consider their needs above my own. In fact, that seems like the opposite. In his book, The Road to Character, David Brooks explores what he calls the happiness code. And at the core of this code is the idea that human beings are not simply fulfilled by happiness and pleasure. Rather, we are so deeply craved, we so deeply crave meaning and purpose as well. The good life is so much more, as the Apostle Paul puts it, than gratifying the desires of the flesh. That's what led Brooks to consider that holiness is much more of a central pursuit of human beings, or ought to be, than happiness. See, unlike happiness, holiness by nature is about the character and quality of somebody else. And in the Christian imagination, that person, of course, is God himself. So our modern vision of happiness is all about our character and what we desire, right? It's about self, and that's why it leads to pride. But the Bible's vision of happiness is about God's character and his desires. It's all about him, and that's what leads us to humility. See, what's wild is I think that we are all attracted to humility, generally speaking. We think that's a good thing, but very few of us build our lives in such a way that we would achieve it. We recognize it in somebody else, we, we applaud it when we see it, but very few of us build a life aiming at humility. I think it's because we fear, and here's where I believe it starts getting real, we believe that we cannot be humble and happy. We think that to be humble, I have to lay down everything that will make me happy. This is why I love the scriptures. 20th century Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones put it best in his sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, whenever you put happiness before righteousness, you will be doomed to misery. That is the great message of the Bible, he continues, from beginning to end. They alone are truly happy who are seeking to be righteous. For our purposes today, we might say seeking happiness never leads to humility. But seeking humility will always make you happy. That's what I want to try to talk about today. That's what I want to try to help us understand. This paradox of character and pleasure and how we cultivate humility as followers of Jesus. Here's how I'd like to organize our time, keeping in mind that Paul is going to have to first talk about pride before we get at humility. This is one of the reasons it's hard to be humble is we've got to actually admit we're proud first. We've got to start there. Here, here's how I'd like to organize our time. The problem of pride, the antidote to pride, and the beauty of humility. So the problem of pride, the antidote for of pride, and then the beauty of humility. In order to accomplish this, like always, we're going to need God's help. So let's pray. Let's ask for his help. Heavenly Father, left to ourselves in earthly wisdom, we uh, have and will continue to make a mess of this. 
Um, I know that though I desire to be humble like Jesus, I make so many decisions that try to protect myself from being humble or to truly laying down my life because I fear the cost of it. And so I pray for my sisters and brothers. Would you expose these costs that we're afraid of today? Would you, would you center us on your kindness and on your goodness to us through your word? That we would even confront these fears for perhaps the very first time so that we would not just find humility today, but that we would find happiness and joy that lasts, not something that's here for a second and feels good until that vacation or that moment or that experience is over, but something that truly is good. We pray and ask that in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. So Paul is going to use some familiar, uh, familiar language uh, today, but it's a really challenging metaphor. So he's going to talk in such a way that maybe we recognize it, but to truly discern the meeting, we're just going to have to take some work. So first, we've got to discern a little bit about who he's talking about, what he's saying about who he's talking about, and then we can go from there to understand a little bit more of how this hits, hits our world. Sound good? Look at Romans 11, verse 17 through the first part of verse 18. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So it's an olive tree metaphor. And I'm going to presume, like me, you have very little knowledge about olive trees and a process that the Apostle Paul is talking about here called, called grafting. See, horticulture was and is a theme throughout Scripture. It's a metaphor used throughout Scripture in places like the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Mark, and obviously here in Romans and also in 1 Corinthians. But in particular, this word picture is beyond what is just a simple process of nature, right? It's not just something that's, that happens within the course of time in a typical process. You see, while the metaphor is in general about a tree, it's particularly about this process or this practice of grafting of which I knew nothing, right? So I had to go to someone. Scholar Leon Morris explains that when an old olive tree had lost its vigor, it seems that one remedy in antiquity was to cut away the failing branches and graft in some new wild olive shoots. That sounds fantastic. That's amazing. This is a way of preserving a tree that otherwise left alone and left to the natural course of things would actually break down, decompose, and die. So it's a metaphor, not just simply of a tree, not just simply of grafting, but it's a metaphor of intervention. Grafting reinvigorates the tree, and this is consistent with the doctrine, the teaching of justification that the Apostle Paul has been teaching for the past couple of weeks that Juan and Derek have been teaching on. That the salvation of the Gentiles was meant not to further condemn the Jewish people, but to reinvigorate them to the reality of the gospel. Remember earlier, Paul says he's hoping that it's going to make the Jews jealous that the Gentiles are being included, not to condemn them more, but so that they'd wake up and they'd become followers of Jesus too. It's, it's a reinvigoration. It's a divine intervention to bring life. Now, so who are we talking about when we talk about all of this? Some Jews are the branches that Paul talks about that have been broken off. That is, that they were part of Abraham's biological family, but not a part of his spiritual family because they didn't believe that Jesus was Lord. Then he talks about the Gentiles as a wild olive shoot, which had been grafted or made part of the tree. He's talking about this multi-ethnic family of God now, which now has the result really formed through divine intervention of God's work in and through. That's why he says now they share in this nourishing root there in verse 18. And he's talking, if you remember, directly now to the Gentile 
readers. This subsection of 9 through 11, he was addressing Jews, or the religiously minded grew up in the faith. Now he is zeroing in on the Gentiles. He's directly addressing them. And the reason is really helpful, (laughs) because think about this, that that people are reading in first century Rome, they just got this letter from Paul, and for like two chapters, he's saying the Jews this, the Jews this, the Jews this. The Gentiles start getting really comfortable. They're like, yeah, you guys don't accept us. You need to love us. You guys need to welcome us. You need to invite us over. We're part of the church too. And they can get really comfortable in thinking that the Jews are the ones that need to come correct because they are the new kids in the block, and they are the ones that need to be accepted now. So after all of that, he wants to make sure that the Gentiles aren't getting it twisted, that they are not missing the point, that they are not getting comfortable, that they don't misunderstand. So what does he say to them? Don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. Do not be arrogant in particular toward the branches. Now why? Why does he need to say this? Why is this so necessary? Why does Paul warn the Gentiles not to be arrogant toward the Jews? Let's look at it generally and then specifically. Generally, it is so human to compare ourselves, isn't it? right? If you're not saying amen, you're lying, right? You don't do that in church. I mean, you should do it anywhere, right? But in particular church, Gentiles were likely tempted to look at those who were no longer part of the family of God, those Jewish people, and think, oh, you didn't believe the gospel. Not like us. And consider themselves better than them. Herein lies the problem. Herein lies the problem of pride. It's centered on self, on personal character, on personal pleasure. It's a curse of comparison. It's a result of seeking a self-defined happiness. It's a preoccupation with self, and I think it manifests through comparison. You, you know what it's like. You're having a really good day, right? And then you go on Instagram and you go, I'm not having that good of a day, right? You had a really great week at work and feel like you really accomplished some things. You go, that person wrote a book and they have a job and are raising all these kids. I don't even, how do they do that? My clothes didn't even match today, right? Like, there's so many things that you go online or in community, and immediately there's comparison. You see, the nature of the Gentile spiritual pride is rooted in comparison with the Jewish people. But God has not moved on from his chosen people and chosen a different people. Rather, what has God done? What has Paul been communicating? That God is making a new people with both Jews and Gentiles. So that's the general problem with pride, is that it's about comparison and it's centered on self. That's general, but now let's think about it particularly, specifically. There is this, between the lines, that we have to understand that the Jews were the religiously minded ones. They were the traditionalists. They were the old heads in Rome, right? The people who had been around the God of the Bible for a very long time. So through comparison in general, though that may be a temptation, more specifically I think what's going on is that the Gentiles would have been tempted to be arrogant toward the Jewish people because the Gentiles thought they, on their own merits, understood the gospel better than some Jews. On their own merits, understood the nature of God better than them. This is also the problem of pride. And church, I think we need to contend with the fact that we are all wildly guilty of this, myself included if not chief amongst you. There is an epidemic, is there not, of comparison and judgment within the modern American church today. Within our own family. We could go through a thousand different examples. Let me give you one that I think we have to face as a a church, made and comprised of the way that we are. For many of us, we don't simply disagree with religiously minded traditionalists who love the Bible and aren't millennials, right? 
people who perhaps are far more socially and theologically conservative than we are, we don't just simply disagree with them, we despise them and we judge them. We think we're better than them. We think that we get God more than them, that we love our neighbor more than them, that we understand mission and the world better than they do, that we understand the gospel better, and it leads us to be arrogant towards them. We consider them stalwarts or stalwarts of legalism and shame and ourselves to be stewards of grace, all the while we're doling out judgment as we do so. I know this is so true of me, that whenever I hear an opinion or read something online or see who somebody voted for or what clothes they're wearing, I go, oh, so glad I'm not like them. You remember Jesus like, made an address about this in the Gospels? Those of you who are praying, dear Lord, thank you for not making me like that person because they're lame, right? And I'm not. This is what's going on within the people of God today. All the while saying the thing I understand more than them is grace. And aren't they terrible for not understanding that? Gosh, would you smite them, almighty smiter? Because you and I got a good thing going on. I don't know, maybe it's just me and maybe this is just like a time for me to air some of my own brokenness, but I think this is an epidemic in our hearts. That's the problem with pride, is that it's centered on self and it leads to comparison, but it doesn't stop there. It further leads us to despisement, to look at those people, whoever they might be, and to think how great it is that I'm not like them, how great it is that I'm part of the family, and how good it is even for the church that I'm here and not them. Paul says, though, what? Don't be arrogant. And we have to be honest, we are. So how might we decouple ourselves from this comparison epidemic, this judgment, this pride? Well, wisdom would tell us that first we've got to acknowledge it, right? Before you can solve a problem, you've got to acknowledge it. So I think before you and the Lord, take it to him this week. Lord, how is pride and judgment showing up in my life? When is it showing up? To whom is it showing up? And here's what's even harder. Is there somebody I need to ask forgiveness for judging them, and they may not even know that you did it? You want to blow somebody's mind with grace? Apologize and seek forgiveness for something that they didn't even know that you did. Because you know that it was out of step with the gospel. But there's more than that. Look how Paul goes on. Look at verse 18, the second half, on into 19. He says, if you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be engrafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not be proud, but fear. I love this. I love what Paul does here. I love that Paul gives a warning. Don't be arrogant in that first half of verse 18. But then he gives a solution when we fail to abide by this warning. Notice that. If you are. Don't you love that? Don't be arrogant, but if you are here's what you need to know. This is so gospel. See, religion tells us, don't do this and do this, right? Don't be arrogant. The gospel tells us, or rather the gospel gives us hope to understand what we are to do or where our hope lies when we don't do what religion told us, when we fail and fall short of what religion has told us. He says, if you are. This is the beauty of the gospel. And as a result of the gospel, Paul lays out three aspects, three aspects of how we might decouple ourselves from the allure of arrogance and comparison. He tells us the truth, he reminds us about faith, and then he tells us to fear God. So he tells us the truth, he reminds us about faith, and then he tells us to fear God. First, notice he, he gives us the truth. 
He reminds the Gentiles they're not supporting the root, but the root supports you. In other words, these men and women whom the Gentiles are tempted and despise to, to despise and judge and compare themselves constitute the very foundation of their spiritual family. We regularly face this temptation, don't we? To be arrogant towards our spiritual forebears. Like, oh, they didn't get it. But now we have perfected Christianity. We've perfected the church. We know how to do this thing now. We face this temptation as well. I, I think it, for me and perhaps our generation, many of us, you know, are numbered among the same generation. I think this is particularly true when it relates to matters of race. We have a tendency to despise and judge and compare ourselves with Christians who either own slaves and or defended racism from the Bible in previous generations. I think we face a similar temptation as the church reckons with things like sexual abuse and misconduct of previous generations in the church. Or when an older brother or sister has a very different social or political view than us. We reach for temptation. But what's the truth? What is Paul saying is the truth for those Gentile readers or for people like us who have a tendency to judge others? Well, we actually have a lot to owe to the saints who have gone before us. We have a lot to owe to them. Without caveat and without moral requirement, did you notice that one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother? It actually never asked, are they a good mom? Are they a good dad? That's unsettling. Hey, bud. You're supposed to honor your father and mother. Right? Without caveat, without moral equivalent, without moral requirement, simply honor them. Their spiritual achievements, no matter how great, their failures, no matter how heinous, have been or will be used by God for your good. Paul says that is true. How uncomfortable is that? Judgment feels real comfortable. I want to look in the past, I want to say, here's what you did that was evil and wrong and bad, and I judge you. What's really hard is to say, God, how did you use even the most broken people to bring about your good, pleasing, and perfect will, of which I now benefit from by your grace? That's hard, but it protects your heart from judgment. It protects us from arrogance. See, while we don't condone or ignore their sins, we are not arrogant toward anybody. This is so vital to understand. There is a difference between holding someone accountable and despising them. We should hold Christians accountable to the word of God. We should not despise our brothers and sisters. There's a difference between speaking the truth about sins of others and being arrogant towards them because they sin in different ways than we do. That's the truth. Paul goes on to remind us then of the centrality of faith. The Gentiles were not saved because they were better than the Jews. They were not saved because the Jews fell away and God needed different companions and needed somebody else to be close to him, to keep him company. Non-Jewish people were grafted into the family of God by the same grace that the Jewish people were. It was about faith. And Paul focuses on this reality when writing even to the church in Ephesus. He's keen to remind his Gentile readers there. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Church, if you don't constantly, daily think that your salvation is a gift, you will constantly be tempted to be arrogant toward others. If you think you've earned it, then daily you will judge other people around you, even your brothers and sisters. I know this is true for me. 
that when I believed that the Lord saved me because I was going to be on his varsity team and really effective for the gospel, I start judging people who I don't think are as gifted or as helpful as me. When I know, like the Apostle Paul says, chief among sinners, like I am the least likely one to have been included in the family, then I look at everybody else with grace too because I know that's why I'm here. Salvation is a matter of faith. So no one can be proud, no one can be arrogant. And here in Romans 11, he says, you stand fast through faith. In other words, you were saved by faith and you are kept by faith. When we compare ourselves with others, when we are arrogant toward them, we are not living a life of faith. We are not standing in faith. Rather, we are trusting in demonic powers of ambition and works and achievement and vanity and money. Salvation is a gift not another earthly measure of superiority. Faith is not a licensed church to judge others. Faith is an opportunity to thank God for the ways that he has graced us. Finally, Paul does not just tell the truth. He doesn't just remind us of faith, but now he says to fear God. Pride is the result of comparing ourselves with people, but godly fear is a result of seeing yourself before God. This is why it feels really comfortable to just be proud, (laughs) And arrogance, because we're just like comparing with people that we know we might be able to have one leg up on, right? We don't want to compare ourselves with God because we know that's not going to go well for us, right? So comparing ourselves with each other leads to pride. Comparing ourselves with God actually humbles us and it leads to godly fear. Why? Because he's holy and we are not. More specifically, Paul says that Gentiles should fear God because he is kind and severe. Look what he says as he continues in verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. This is, this is crazy. Like, let's, let's not miss this. In other words, don't get comfortable. Don't compare yourself with others. If, if God broke off branches he sure enough can cut off wild olive shoots. That's what Paul is saying. In other words, on your own, you are not safe in the family of God. On your own merit, you and I are not safe. It is God's kindness alone which saves and keeps and holds his people fast. Therefore, rather than be arrogant towards others, we should fear God. Which means we ought to be ever mindful that what we are, what we have, And what we will ever become is all simply by the merit, love, kindness, mercy, and grace of God. Church, this is why Christians are supposed to be the most thankful people on the planet. Because we know we don't deserve anything and we could not make our good life happen on our own. So therefore, everything I have is a gift. That's what James writes about in his opening in James 1, right? Every good and perfect gift comes down from who? The Father of lights. Can you imagine if we became a people who turned everything into thankfulness? Right? That everything that happens to us, we're just so grateful, just so grateful that God has entrusted us with this and with this person, with this opportunity, with this job, with this hardship, with this suffering, with this problem, that it would increase my dependency upon him. It's hard to think about fearing God because I think we have one lens about fear, which is harm. I fear what will harm me. But we don't fear God because he will harm us. We fear God because he is altogether different from us, and we don't have a category to fit him in. He is kind and severe. I know people that are one or the other, right? 
But Paul just said he's both. At the same time, he is all truth and he is all love. Reflecting on the Proverbs and this idea of fearing God, Pastor Ray Ortland explains that it can be extremely painful to learn the fear of the Lord. It is death to our narcissistic egos and self-assured opinions and superior neutrality. But we do not change for the better by turning inward. We change as we turn outward and upward to the Lord with an awakened sense of his sheer reality, his moral beauty, his eternal grandeur, infinitely above us, but relevant to us. See, when we compare ourselves to others, especially in pursuit of our happiness, we will always be disappointed, and as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it will always lead to misery. We will always be proud. But when we compare ourselves to God, it will lead us to holy fear, and a holy fear, church, is the groundswell of humility. See, humility is not about thinking about yourself less. It's not about thinking about yourself more poorly. It's about thinking about yourself accurately before God. So if I want a right view, if I know that I'm proud, I know that I'm not seeing myself through the lens of the scriptures, through the lens of my Lord. I'm seeing it by another way. You see, this is how the scriptures equip us for the battle of the allure of comparison and arrogance. This is the antidote to pride. We listen to the truth, we center ourselves on faith, and we look to God. And can I just submit to you, we need each other to do that. You can't do that on your own. You know who knows when I'm being arrogant and proud? My wife. My group. My fellow elders. My parents. You all. My church family. I need, I need your help to know. Actually, that just seems like you're not seeing yourself accurately before God. It seems like you're seeing yourself and comparing yourself to other pastors, to other husbands, to other fathers, to other church leaders. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? I need your help to say, are you looking at God? Are, are you standing in faith? Are you listening to the truth? And I'm supposed to be that to you. Are you listening to the truth? Are you standing in faith? Are you looking to God? So that we would fight pride and an inappropriate fear of the world together. We might rightly fear God together. Paul's not done. I mean, his course is not done. He's got one more final blow <laughs> to deliver. Romans eleven twenty three through 24 says this, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, another reason why we or Paul's Gentile readers should not be arrogant toward unbelieving Jews is that they still have time to believe. Paul says it, uh, says that in the same way you got welcomed into the family by grace, through faith, divine intervention, God can welcome those you despise. Who you think you're better than. He can welcome others. Specifically the Jews who were at first, who at first did not believe. Let me put as fine a point on this as I possibly can. Church, be very careful how you treat your enemies because they might soon be your family. If you believe in the power of the gospel, you should be very careful about those whom you oppose, those whom you are tempted to despise and judge, because in the blink of an eye, God can transform the human heart. 
what Paul is saying. Do not be arrogant who, to those who you think don't get it, those who you think don't understand, those who you think don't know Jesus or love Jesus the way that you do, because at one time, neither did you. Neither did I. This is, both, this is both so comforting and convicting, isn't it? It's like, oh yeah, right, I shouldn't be on this team and I'm here. Thanks be to God for grace. Oh shoot, I really don't operate out of grace very often, do I? It's both comforting and convicting. See, we call God's grace amazing for a reason. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the beauty of humility. After all, Jesus Christ is the only member of the family tree who belongs a part of that tree on his own merit. He's the only one. He's the only one who was never broken off. He was the only one who was never grafted in. And he didn't despise you. And he doesn't despise you. He didn't despise me. He didn't compare himself with you. He didn't judge you. He didn't judge me. He wasn't arrogant towards us who didn't belong. He, he didn't, wasn't arrogant towards us who didn't get it. He wasn't proud over those who didn't understand, who didn't know God. No. He wasn't arrogant towards us. He humbled himself towards us. He humbled us. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul explains this beauty perhaps most majestically in his letter to the Philippian church. When he said, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We might say, like a Romans, Romans 11, that here in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, religion is telling us to be humble. That we're supposed to be a church who aspires to reflect the humility of Christ. Encourage one another in this. Doesn't this sound like a community you want to belong to? It's diverse, it's encouraging, it's comforting, it's loving. There is affection and sympathy and joy and unity. We all ought to aspire to that. But it is merely re religious. It's just like saying, don't be arrogant. Be humble. We can't do that on our own. Don't you long for, when you read a passage like this, an if you are statement? A gospel statement of hope, like in Romans 11, when we fall short of what religion is telling us to do? Well, that's Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Here's what that says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, the happy life, a life of purpose, a life of pleasure, a life of character and joy comes through humility, yet we are not on our own humble. We are arrogant towards our brothers and sisters and others in pursuit of happiness. That's the truth, yet the Apostle Paul here explains in Philippians is that we can place our lives and our trust in someone who is actually humble. In fact, he was humble towards us. He was humble for us. And now by grace, we can become like him. We can be humble. That, the most elusive virtue ever is yours in Christ. Do you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying? Which is yours. 
in Christ Jesus. My sister, my brother, if you want to be a humble man, if you want to be a humble woman, you can be in Christ. We have to contend with the problem of pride, which manifests in comparison and of seeking our own happiness. The antidote of pride is being found in the truth and faith and the fear of the Lord. And the beauty of humility is demonstrated on the cross, where we are not despised or rejected, but where the truly humble one was despised and rejected for you. In other words, the one who was neither broken off nor engrafted into the family was cut off from his father so that you and I might be joined with him. He was cut off for us. For the father's glory, but in his kindness also that the father might preserve and keep us of his spiritual family. And it's in his family where you won't just find humility. I think you'll find happiness too. Would you pray with me? Father, It's hard to face our own pride. It's uncomfortable to get specific about the ways we are arrogant towards our neighbors and our brother and sister, and yet when we do, we find hope. We find forgiveness. We find that you don't despise us even when we have despised others, but rather you remind us of the gospel, of your son, our brother, who was despised and rejected so that we wouldn't have to be. So may that transform the way we see each other. May that change the way. May that grace transform our hearts in such a way that our impulse toward difference is love and curiosity, not judgment and condemnation. Would you do that, God, so that we'd be a people who are more like Christ? We'd become friends, colleagues, husbands, wives, children who are more reflective of your gracious disposition towards us. We ask that you do that for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.